Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and today I will not be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. Today, we are excited to bring you a very special episode for our season two finale of the Iron Butterfly podcast in partnership with Girl Security a nonprofit organization working to forge equity and national security by preparing girls and gender minorities to advance confidently in the national security's many pathways. On this episode, we asked three girl security mentees in high school and college to identify their IC sheroes. They did not disappoint, and we are thrilled to be joined by three amazing women. The Honorable Suzanne Spaulding, Vice Admiral Kelly Ashback, and the Honorable Ellen McCarthy. Our first panelist, the Honorable Suzanne Spaulding, is a former Undersecretary for National Protection and Programs at the Department of Homeland Security, now the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. She is joined by Rhea, a high school junior at Oxford Academy in Orange County, California, who has a keen interest in cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. Our second panelist, Admiral Kelly Ashback, is Commander of Naval Information Forces and the former Commander of the Office of Naval Intelligence. She is joined by Emma, a rising senior at the University of Pittsburgh interested in counterterrorism and nonproliferation issues. Our last panelist is no stranger to our listeners, and we are so excited to be joined for a second time by the Honorable Ellen McCarthy, former Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research more commonly known as INR. She is joined by Abby, a senior at Virginia Tech University who is interested in information warfare and foreign policy. Welcome ladies. I am so excited to have you all with us for this special episode. Our listeners might not know that one of our panelists today, Suzanne, is a member and of the board of directors for Girl Security. Suzanne, can you share with us how you got involved in Girl Security and why the work they are doing really matters. Absolutely. Uh, Megan, first, let me start by uh, saying what a pleasure it is to be on this podcast, Iron Butterfly, and I love the name. And thank you to AWICS, uh, Amazing Women in the IC, for all that you do. It's really exciting and thrilled uh, to have this opportunity to talk with the mentees from Girl Security. Um, I, I, as you noted, I'm on the board of Girl Security. I knew the founder, uh, Lauren Bean Buita, for years, decades, really, uh, dare I say, before she came up with this wonderful idea. We had lunch one day in D.C., and Lauren said to me, um, I have what I think might be a crazy idea, and I need a sanity check. You know, I'm thinking that we need more women in the pipeline for national security and that we need to get to them earlier. And so I'm thinking about starting something where I go into high schools and talk to high school girls about national security. 
am I crazy? And I said, Lauren, that is a brilliant idea. I love it. It has to be done. Uh, you've got to do it. And, and she, uh, you know, bless her, you know, says to this day that if I had given her a different answer, she would maybe never have started girl security. So, which makes me so nervous. Um, and I'm so glad that, uh, that she did. It's such an important organization and you, uh, aptly described it, Megan, but in addition to encouraging, uh, young women, girls to think about careers in national security, it's also about just empowering uh, girls to, to be active and informed and engaged citizens uh, in the discussions and debates in our country around national security issues, to feel empowered, uh, to have an interest in national security and not think that is something beyond them, whether they ever choose a career in national security or not. So I just think it is such an important and wonderful organization. Really proud to be associated with it and really pleased that they're uh, that you've joined with them for this podcast. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And we are just honored that we are partners with Girls Security. And we appreciate that you gave Lauren a little push to start Girls Security because here we are. So thank you. Before we formally kick things off, I'd love for our mentees to introduce themselves. Uh, Rhea, Emma, and Abby, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what Girl Security has meant to you? Rhea, let's start with you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Rhea Jetbani, and I'm a high school junior from Orange County, California. I first got involved with cybersecurity through the Cyber Patriot Capture the Flag competitions at my school. And I found it really exciting and a great application of my interest in computer science. And since then, I've been pursuing my interest in cyber defense by taking classes at my local community college and earning my industry certifications. So I'm very honored to be part of this amazing podcast, and I'm excited to learn more about the national security field from our inspiring panelists. Thanks, Rhea. We are so excited to have you. Uh, Emma, you're next. Hi everyone, I'm Emma and I'm an Administration of Justice major and Chinese minor at the University of Pittsburgh. My interest in national security really stems from growing up hearing my father's stories about 9-11. He was actually in the city on the day of the attack and feeling my emotions regarding the attack develop over time from confusion and anger to hope for a safer future and the determination to ensure another incident like 9-11 never happens again. And my interest in intelligence was realized through my participation in different national security internship experiences, where I found that I really love the process of research and analysis. Girl security has been an amazing opportunity for me to learn about the real life experiences of women in national security. And they've been a great source of inspiration and insight into this field. Knowing that there's a network of support is truly invaluable. Thanks so much, Emma. Abby? I'm Abby Cross. I actually just this past Saturday graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, National Security, and a a minor in War and Society. I graduated Magna Cum Laude, which is exciting. And Girl Security to me is an incredible network of women who are both inspiring and make me want to pursue my career even further. Um, And it's been incredible being paired with a mentor who not only challenges me on what I think I already know about intelligence, national security, and foreign affairs, but uh, confirms to me why I love it so much. Thanks so much, Abby. 
Now I am excited to step aside and let our amazing girl security mentees, Rhea, Emma, and Abby take the reins. Abby, why don't you kick us off? Ellen, I often find myself the only woman in my classes on intelligence. This can sometimes be fun, but I wish it wasn't like this all the time. How have you navigated such an amazing career in a male-dominated industry? I mean, first of all, congratulations. Holy schmoly, that's incredible. Graduated magna cum laude. That's, that's wonderful. So the IC is ready for you. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that it's, I, I love this question. Um, although I'm saddened by this question that you are the only woman in many of your classes on intelligence. I'd like to think that certainly when I was in school, like a hundred years ago, that that would have changed. Um, but I'll tell you that um, at least my experience was I, I, worked for the earlier part of my career in the defense and law enforcement side. In fact, um, Kelly, I started as an all-source analyst at Office of Naval Intelligence. And, you know, there were not a lot of women in the 80s doing all-source analysis in, in the military side of the house, certainly on the civilian side. But I never really had a problem with that because I always had really great male bosses, um, both civilian and military. I mean, I was blessed for um, most of my career having phenomenal male bosses. I'll tell you what it really hit me was when I was making the leap from a GS to a senior executive. And it was, it was making that leap to senior that it turned out to be um, the women in my world that actually not ju didn't just serve as mentors. We didn't have them back then, but were sponsors. They pushed me. They made calls on my behalf. And, and as I sat there realizing it was, it was the women that helped me make that next leap to, to take on that next challenge, I started to reflect on my career. And I don't know if you've thought this, but I, I started to think back and, and, and think, you know, how many times was I sitting in a room where um, all eyes were on each other? You'd be standing in a group of men, I'd be the only woman, and the men would be looking at, their, at each other, but there would never be any sort of um, you know, I was never engaged in a conversation. I was not a, and, and I always thought that that just meant that I wasn't good enough, that I had to study harder, that I had to work harder. And another thing that really hit me was the number of times I'd be sitting in meetings and I would say something and then somebody else, a man would say the exact same thing, just differently. And and again, I always thought that it was just that I had to work harder. And so that's what I did. I would work harder. I would study more. I'd be more prepared. And, and yet it kept happening. It was so funny because it really, I guess I must be slow because it was only 20 years into my career that I looked back and I realized, holy schmoly, this is, this is, this is what I was dealing with. And I didn't even know it until I started um, working more closely with some of my women colleagues until I started developing closer relationships with the women who really would help push me further along in my career. Great question. Yeah, if I could, Abby, I was going to add uh, and echo Alan's sentiment that I do think through my career uh, that the other women that I met in the course of progressing up through the Navy are still a very um, tight cohort for me uh, and that we, we do uh, cheerlead each other uh, lean on each other. We remain in close contact. And in fact, uh, for the last two years annually, we have a group of about 12 of us that get together once a year. And all of us have roots in naval intelligence and have stayed in touch over the years through a time frame when we joined where the opportunity for women was more limited. And we didn't necessarily have as many role models to look up to. Uh, we looked out for each other. And, uh, and it's certainly uh, much more encouraging now that when you look around, there, there's so many more women, and I, I actually took uh, took it as a sign that we progressed um, uh, in really good ways when I had a, a woman officer that I was trying to mentor, 
actually tell me that I was not a good mentor for her because my life, even though I had a husband and kids and she had a husband and kids, I wasn't doing it the way she was doing it. Her husband was actually working, her kids were younger, and we have so much diversity among the women who are in the workforce now that she had a great point. I, and I, so I worked mm -hmm. to connect her with someone who was more like her. But I remember you know, when I came in that just finding a woman and a woman who was married and had children uh, it was like a unicorn uh, if you could actually connect with somebody. And so uh, so I do think we've traveled a long way. And I, and I would say to Ellen's credit that the group that is her cohort, um, women like Terry Roberts um, and Tish Long, uh, they have looked out for those coming behind them. And so there are these cohorts or year groups, you know, that all bond together and I think look out for each other across the intel community both civilian and military, which is uh, really fabulous. Admiral Ashback, since I started studying in college, I've realized that the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. How do you respond to feelings of imposter syndrome? Emma, that's a great question. Uh, I often uh, have reflected when I've been given assignments that uh, I don't feel like I've necessarily had the resume for the job and have often questioned the wisdom of the deciders on picking me to fill a particular role. And so have certainly had anxiety in some cases when I've moved on to a new position. And I have some great examples. You know, my background is in intelligence, but I commanded a communication center, which was well outside my um, experience or wheelhouse when I went there. And I also went to Afghanistan as a brand new uh, flag officer in the Navy and had not had previous time on the ground, uh, boots on ground going over there. And so was nervous, you know, integrating with the army about what I could offer them. And how I've overcome it is one, um, I actually have learned to embrace uh, what makes me uncomfortable and actually sort of embrace that feeling that perhaps you, you feel like you don't know what you're doing, but you have to trust uh, in most cases that the people who select you to do things uh, do have confidence in you. Mm -hmm. And so when you're having some doubt about whether you're the right person, I think the starting point is reminding yourself that uh, some thought went into why you've ended up where you are and that folks have the confidence that you will make an impact. And then I think you need to be humble when you go into the position and freely admit that there are things that you don't know. And I find that you often end up empowering the people you're working with uh, by asking them questions allowing them to offer you solutions that, frankly, if you were an expert, uh, you might decide right away what you wanted to do and you wouldn't uh, create uh, an environment where they feel more included. And so um, by not being an expert or thinking you're not an expert, uh, you often end up, I think, creating a better team uh, to work with you uh, over time. Uh, and so I think there's strengths uh, to, uh, to what might seem like imposter syndrome um, but, uh, but I think that little nagging doubt sometimes is actually a good check on ourselves uh, to make sure that we are well prepared, that we are leaning on our teammates, and that we are constantly working, I think, to push ourselves outside our comfort zone and take on new challenges. Because I think that's what keeps this business very interesting, challenging, uh, and presents new opportunities uh, when you look, uh, look uh, at the, the problem that way. Yeah, I, I, I would just say, Emma, that is such great advice from uh, Admiral Ashback. And, and, and I will say uh, that feeling that imposter syndrome never goes away, if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, as she said, you, you know, if you're lucky, you keep pushing yourself and having opportunities to rise to the next level. And that's always a little scary. Uh, and even 
when I was the undersecretary of the Department of Homeland Security, I, my last government position, uh, I often would say to people, I've never had a job where I was more aware of all the mistakes that I make. Uh, and, and you just have to keep telling yourself that you can do this and that other people who seem to, you know, uh, not have this insecurity or who seem to know everything really don't either uh, know everything and, and, and probably do have many of the same uh, feelings. And, uh, and you are, uh, you are capable of doing this. You know, I have a, a daughter who's a freshman in college and she's studying physics and she just believes that everybody else in her class is the physics whiz. And, you know, I think, I think sort of online learning and social media doesn't help because everybody looks like a whiz online or in social media. And so I'm constantly reminding her, you know, you know, keep working at it. Everybody's, everybody's putting on their best face. Um, I love the, um, I love Admiral Oshbach's um, humility um, suggestion because um, I, I think that is a way to look at, at, at everything. I also think there's something um, about always having a plan B. And I know that's harder when you're in the military, but on the civilian side, um, you know, nothing is ever, you know, trying something out and seeing if you like it, seeing if it's, it's something that you have a skill at or, or want to learn is great. But there's nothing wrong with having a plan B. And it gives you such great confidence. If you go in and you're not taking yourself so seriously, if you don't think this is the end of the road, if you, if you know there's always something else you can do. I've joked many times that I was a waitress and a bartender, and people seriously think I'm joking about this. But I will tell you, every job I have taken, to include now while I'm kind of unemployed, I've always thought I could always go down the street and waitress. I was a great waitress. I loved it. I loved working with people. I loved food. I've taken every challenge with I could always go back and waitress. And, and, and it's made each day a little easier. Thank you all so much. Um, yeah, hearing, hearing your different insights about this issue and the ways that you all work to overcome it is, is really inspiring and also helpful to me as I move on. And um, I'll always consider your advice on this. Thank you. So Suzanne, I would love to learn a little bit more about your journey in national security. If you had any struggles, what were they and how did you overcome them to get where you are today? Yeah, great question, Rhea. Thank you. I, I, I've actually been incredibly fortunate in my career. I have worked for and with wonderful people. Uh, and, and so when I went to work at CIA, for example, I, I was working for Elizabeth in the general counsel's office. I was a lawyer, uh, I graduated from law school, had done a stint in private practice and on the Hill, and, um, but, but managed to wind up at CIA in the general counsel's office, which I loved. The general counsel was Elizabeth Rinscroft Parker. Uh, and, and, and an opportunity arose to assign a lawyer to the folks who worried about weapons of mass destruction. Um, I had an interest, long-standing interest in the issue and said, I'd love to do that. I was working part-time. I had two little, uh, very small children. Uh, and I was working part-time three days a week. And the man in the office said, you can't give her that. You can't let Suzanne have that assignment. You know, she's only working part-time. And Elizabeth said, I think Suzanne can do this. And she gave me the opportunity and it was terrific. And Elizabeth is a dear friend and a colleague. And, I, and I, when I went to work at DHS, Janet Napolitano was the secretary. And uh, I remember correctly, four of the five top positions in the department were filled by women. So uh, I, I've had some wonderful opportunities as well. But I, 
I was thinking about, you know, uh, what were some of the challenges that you encountered as a woman coming up? And interestedly enough, they were mostly around travel. But when I worked on Capitol Hill, for example, I worked for a U.S. Senator, Senator Arlen Specter from Pennsylvania. And I remember him telling me early on that I would never be able to travel, go on a trip with him, just the two of us. Because he said, you know, just you can't do it. People will talk. And so as a woman, I was immediately, you know, not going to have the, that, those opportunities to travel with the senator, just the two of us. Now, I did do travel uh, as part of a team when I was working in the Senate, but I, but I remember thinking that was really unfair, uh, just sort of the way the world is. And when I went to work at CIA, uh, I remember very well, um, Ellen and, and, and Admiral Ashbrook, I don't know whether these are conversations that you know, happened around your uh, work environment as well, when there were delegations being sent to places overseas, particularly in the Middle East, a lot of discussion about whether women could be part of that delegation given the, the you know, restrictions on women and the attitudes towards women in those countries. And of course, you know, I pushed back and others pushed back, but there was a real tension there between showing respect, wanting to show respect for the cultures uh, that you were going to be traveling to and could a, could a team with a woman, could a woman leading a team be effective, et cetera. I will tell you just one story. Um, it did succeed in pushing back and going on the trip to Kazakhstan as part of an interagency delegation. Uh, and they had, we, w- we went to talk to them about trying to work together to stop the spread of nuclear material uh, and the weapons of mass destruction. This was after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, they had a big fancy dinner for us at a dacha up in the mountains of Kazakhstan, where we wound up literally doing the hokey pokey with the KGB, they started, <laughs> after a lot of vodka, they started singing Kazakh folk songs. And we said, oh, we, you know, we have a great American song. We sang the hokey pokey and we literally danced around the room with the KGB. KGB but, um, but I remember there were tense moments uh, with the Kazakh, our Kazakh hosts and some of the younger women on our delegation. Those were some of the, you know, challenges uh, with, with uh, being a woman coming up you know, in those days, in national security, particularly, uh, and you just, you know, you, you just push through them. Yeah, I would, I would add that uh, I have been fortunate, uh, like Ellen and Suzanne, that I've uh, generally worked in very uh, welcoming and positive environments. So, yeah, I had to, I had to think hard too on this one in terms of personal examples of challenges I felt like I had to overcome. And, and I think probably the most recent example for me was the year I spent in Afghanistan from uh, 2017 to 2018. And there the challenges weren't necessarily created by my U.S. Uh, counterparts or U.S. peers. Uh, they were created by the Afghan culture. And we were supposed to be there to engage with the Afghans. And in fact, uh, General Nicholson, who was running the operation at the time, specifically wanted me to come Uh, Part of the reason was because I was a woman and he wanted the Afghans to see uh, what uh, integrating successful women at all levels of leadership means for your organization. Uh, And by modeling that, uh, continue to encourage them to invest in the education of women in Afghanistan and promote uh, eventually, hopefully, opportunity for them to rise in all institutions because their military uh, is still predominantly male. Uh, but uh, but with, even with all that, though, I definitely found that in terms of cultural engagement, 
uh, that my Afghan counterparts were very respectful of me, but the relationships, the bonds uh, were not the same. And so I encountered that challenge and, and basically reconciled that my boss, who was a male, was just a better person to do really personal engagement when we were really trying to establish a deep relationship with our counterparts and that I was better at perhaps just going to meetings where I was representing a position or exchanging information and, and just determined that that challenge was not, it was not one that I was gonna overcome. Um, I also shared a, a really humorous story when we were doing uh, uh, some of the background work for the podcast tonight that uh, I, as a flag officer over there, you have a security detail. And so when I would go anywhere, I had quite a few people supporting me who would help me with my admin and who also were assigned to protect us as we were moving around. And I think there were about 10 to 12 of us in, a, uh, in the ministry building for a meeting. And I was there for back-to-back -back meetings and I needed to actually take a, a bathroom break. And we had to go to great effort with this team of 12 following me around to find the women's bathroom. And then we learned that the women's bathroom is locked. And there is one woman in the building who supposedly has the key to the bathroom and we had to track her down. But I have to say it was all I could do not to be embarrassed that I had everyone's attention, you know, trying to find the bathroom uh, between meetings uh, uh, in this uh, in this building. But that was just sort of the reality of uh, where it was culturally. And I, you know, it just, you know, turned it into a humorous moment and uh, apologized to the team uh, for uh, not you know convinced that that wasn't necessarily the best use of their time but uh, uh but in the end you know it, a good story to tell uh, one of those uh, sea stories uh, after the fact you know i'm just thinking how many times i've been in that place where it's been hard to find a bathroom because there just isn't one over the course of my career I, the only story i have is um it's uh i'm not sure it was really a challenge but it was really a cathartic moment where i changed um i was actually working at coast guard um, I was a Navy employee at the U.S. Coast Guard. I had been there for a while. I was thinking it was time to go back to the Navy. And in walks this, um, this woman named Fran Townsend. Um, she had been at Department of Justice. Um, and for lots of reasons, she decided it was time to leave justice, um, applied for a position to leave the Coast Guard Intel program. She came into the office. She was maybe five foot two, nine months pregnant. Um, or beautiful clothes. So I had always grown up wearing very sensible heels, very sensitive pantyhose and, and blazers. I was very, very, you know, very conservative because that's what you did. And and in and, and walks this nine-month preg pregnant woman, beautiful shoes, spoke like a sailor, sailor because she had worked in New York, in, in New York and, and, and um, you know, made sure her point was heard. But in a, very, in a way that I just, it, it, her whole style, her whole the way she carried herself just so resonated with me. And it really was a change as, as a result of her. Out went the pantyhose. Well, I didn't talk like a sailor. I definitely started speaking a little differently, um, speaking a little more assertively, um, was willing to take on more chances. And so um, I, I owe her that. In the same vein of fun stories, um, I actually found myself kind of getting into the uh, IC and national security scene because of my experiences when I was little. So when I was younger, my dad, uh, his favorite movie is Saving Private Ryan. And it was on all the time. And so being an only child, uh, and I can quote that movie. So imagine a small six-year-old playing Army by herself, just running around. And I I've watched this documentary once when I was younger also about the Green Berets. And so I run up to my dad one day and I tell him, like, all right. I'm going to be the first female Green Beret. Again, I was like six. 
So he tells me, okay, yeah, go off, uh, go for it, kiddo. And so I took that to heart. Um, and so I, I kept this up and I kind of kept that kind of, I just tucked away in my heart a little bit that, you know what I am, I'm going to join the military and I'm going to, I'm going to be this incredible female soldier. I'm going to do all these things. So when I got to high school, I had just transferred high school as I'd been there for a year. And so I kind of secretly signed up for the ROTC program. Um, and I didn't tell my dad this because I was like, I'm going to surprise him. And it uh, went absolutely opposite of how I thought it was going to. Uh, he was like, I, what? What? How, what do you mean you want to be in the military? Like, that's like not a, not a girl job. Like, what are you talking about? Kind of thing. And I was so astonished because I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Of course I'm going to be in the military. I'm going to, this is my lifelong dream. And so ultimately uh, he actually kind of loosened up on this as time went. And I finished as a cadet Lieutenant Colonel. Um, and I was the executive officer of my battalion and I ran the army inspection that year. Um, but so, Ellen, did you ever take some risks in your career? Um, did you find yourself in a position where you kind of rebelled from the norm like I did? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, um, but, I, but I'll tell you, you say rebel, but for me, fun was my, my biggest motivator. And so I always took jobs that sounded like they would be fun. Of course, my idea of fun is probably not that fun to most normal people. But um, the, the one, I'll tell you, one of the biggest um, well, just, just moving from the Navy to the Coast Guard, I mean, Admiral Oshbach, I got to tell you that I had so many people at O&I when I told them, I was actually down at Sink Lamp Fleet in Norfolk, and when I told them that I was transferring to the Coast Guard, I had all these people say, why are you going to the Coast Guard? They don't shoot anything. Well, it was the end of the Cold War, and let me tell you, you know, the Coast Guard was shooting a lot more stuff during those days where we were very focused on counter-drug operations. I mean, they were, they were shooting a lot more stuff, but... Um, but I think the biggest risk I took in my career was when I actually left government. I was working at the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence at the time. Um, the director, the undersecretary was Jim Clapper. And I was going to go um, lead a fledgling association named INSA, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. And I'll never forget the day I go into his office to tell him that I'm leaving government. And he looked at me and he said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, my heart dropped okay because you know i was a little bit nervous about it anyway but now when you hear from um somebody like director clapper who i had great respect for who said the dumbest thing i've ever heard what are you thinking i thought "Uh uh-oh this is not good um but i'll tell you that i did make i did leave government i did go to inside stayed there for four years it turned out to be a phenomenal sort of off-ramp in my career learning how the private sector um, operates, how the private sector supports the United States intelligence community. They are a partner. They're not subordinate. They're not the slimy contractors that I thought they were when I left. Um, they're very much a partner. We couldn't do what we do if it wasn't for our private sector partners. And interestingly enough, just to just to follow up on, in, in case Director Clapper listens to this podcast, <laughs> um, he, did, he did come back to me a year later at an event and said, I was so proud of you. And there's only one other man at that time who could have said, I'm so proud of you that would have meant so much it was my it was my own dad so having director clapper say ellen i'm so proud meant meant the world to me um and i'm awfully glad i took that risk so i i i hope you take a risk um abby or you continue to take risks they're truly are worth it thank you so much for that it's good to hear um especially as i'm getting ready to prepare for some real world admiral ashback through my studies in international relations 
I've come to understand how complicated preventing national security crises like 9-11 really is. Is it possible to prevent these crises with intelligence? And how do you think through solving this problem? Emma, thanks for that uh, question. Um, I personally think that it is possible uh, to solve crises or head off crises uh, with really good intelligence work. Uh, but it's also possible uh, that we won't prevent crises uh, despite really good intelligence work. And, and some of that's just driven on how the whole national security apparatus works and how everything comes together. Uh, and in thinking through it, you know, there's a number of things you need uh, in order to be effective and uh, predictive uh, about whether something uh, bad is going to happen and whether you're going to have the information that you need to make an assessment that you, that you think would you know, warrant a decision uh, for the United States uh, to do something different relative to a problem. And so, uh, you know, we in the intelligence, uh, one of the keys for us is we really need to have um, prioritization from a collection standpoint so that we actually have data from a number of sources to work with. And if we're given good data that we can uh, assess and, and put together to tell a story, uh, then I think that helps deepen our insight uh, about uh, uh, the situation. And so, um, so I do think that Intel can be very effective. And I think one of the things that we do best is, you know, there's a lot of information out there and you can get um, a lot of details about, uh, you know, how many ships are somewhere or, or uh, whether a ship has moved, um, you know, for example. Uh, but intelligence work involves, you know, the collection and the thought that goes into who are the people that are driving those ships? How well are they trained? You know, how resilient will they be if they're presented with a difficult situation? What might their decision be? Uh, and therefore, what is the risk uh, for the United States uh, in perhaps interacting with these ships? And do we need to provide intelligence that would allow our, um, our decision makers uh, to make uh, uh, assessments about whether they should be operating in certain areas or doing things relative um, to those ships. And I, I just give that as an example. But uh, I, so I do think that we can be very effective and especially since 9-11, I think we've uh, dug in a lot on our trade craft to really ensure uh, that we're bringing the best objectivity, uh, that we cite sources, uh, that we're trying to avoid bias uh, and that we use processes uh, to help enrich uh, the, the, uh, the assessments that we're doing and that they are, are very valid and sound uh, and, uh, and that they also offer uh, an, an, a rating on how confident we are in an assessment. And so those who have to make decisions based on those assessments know that we might be telling them that we're, it's very low confidence that we think this is going to happen or in some cases very high confidence. Um, but, um, but despite all that, I would say that even with good intelligence, in the end, there's a decider. And, you know, for example, it's the president of the United States who's making the decision. Um, he's, he has to make the decision based on the best information. And the intelligence may be telling, we may be telling him that there is a crisis. And for a variety of reasons, when he considers everything, he may make a decision uh, that doesn't prevent that crisis. So, so we can contribute to that. But I would say there's still always risk just based on all the factors involved and, and decisions that have to be made that, that good intelligence still may not prevent uh, something from happening, if, uh, if that makes sense. Hey, you know, if I can, if I can um, jump in, um, 
having just left State Department at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, I was so, it was the first time I'd ever really done intelligence support to policy. I had always, for the most part, worked intelligence support to military or law enforcement. And, you know, I really saw that policy is an art, whereas intelligence is much more of a science. Um, and so, and, and so, and policymakers, and I think Admiral Ashback went, Ashback went there um, you know, they have a lot of sources of information, especially in the policy world. Um, you know, you have open source information where insights are being provided. You have the press, you have relationships with diplomats or around the world. And so you're providing um, that policymaker with what, 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 what one stream of, um, of information upon which they make a decision. And many times they won't use the intelligence, maybe because it doesn't fit the narrative that they came in with. You know, they're, they're trying to secure an agreement with another country and they, they really think that this is the right thing to do. Um, I'll tell you, on some level, it's kind of fun doing intelligence support to, to policy because you're always challenged to see how can you best deliver it, that deliver those insights, that content um, to have an impact on the policymaker. And, and you tend to get direct feedback because you usually are sitting in the same room with them. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very um, exciting um, business line. I wish that I had done policy support much earlier in my career. If I had one regret, I wish I had done that sooner, um, just because it's so interesting. Thank you both so, so much for your responses to this question. It was very insightful and, and interesting to hear your thoughts. Last summer, I led a team in the 2020 Apps for Digital Peace competition, which was sponsored by the United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs and the Cybersecurity Tech Corps. So our idea focused on the recent security issues with Internet of Things devices, and we proposed a centralized device management security platform called IOTANET. And I'm excited to share that out of the young professionals aged 16 to 32, my team was the youngest, and we placed in the top five global finalists of the competition. So when I was at the award ceremony for Apps for Digital Peace, um, I really that was when I realized that America has always been at the forefront of innovation just with the opportunities that we have here. And whether that be technology or national security, I think America has always been a role model country for the United Nations and for the rest of the world. So my question to Suzanne regarding this is, with this quote-unquote role model responsibility that America has, are we innovating fast enough to continue to lead the world in cybersecurity? And if we are, what are our main talking points on this global stage? And if we aren't, what can we be doing to innovate faster? Uh, well, first of all, congratulations, Rhea. That's really amazing. What an accomplishment. And, and it, is, it is precisely uh, young people like you that give me great hope uh, in America's ability to continue to compete uh, and prevail uh, on the on the global uh, stage. Um, but it is. But that having been said, it's a, it is a great question, and it is one that we need to keep asking. Right? Um, you know, we used to uh, dominate in innovation uh, as a result of what the government was doing in many instances, right? Much of the uh, innovative technology that, the, that, the, that America developed uh, originated in the Defense Department um, and with tremendous amount of funding and ability to mobilize, uh, you know, an effort around an objective. Um, and I think that's a big part of what's changed uh, is that 
innovations, certainly for the last couple of decades at least, have come primarily from the private sector. And, uh, and we are challenged by countries like China, really pr- principally by China, not countries like China, but principally China. Um, be, you know, and part of the challenge stems from uh, their industrial policy, the fact that, that there is uh, a, you know, a, a blurry line at best between the government and industry and, uh, and, and the ability then to really mobilize and focus on areas that they want to focus for innovation. And so I think there's an argument about, you know, how we're doing competing on AI, for example, um, for a lot of reasons. And, and one of those is just data. One of the most important things for innovation around uh, the development of, of artificial intelligence is having access to massive amounts of data. And China is producing it and stealing it uh, in, in very you know, significant ways. And so that's a challenge for us. Um, but I am uh, you know, ever the optimist and quite confident. Uh, we've got a lot of smart people working on these things. I, I, I think in quantum computing, there's a big concern about who's sort of who's going to get there first, um, uh, which I think actually sort of misstates you know, what's happening. Um, uh, there are developments in certain areas and then we'll leapfrog a little bit ahead and, and maybe China is doing something interesting over here. And, um, but I think we're, I, uh, my sense is that we remain competitive with respect to quantum computing. 5G is an area that gets a lot of attention right now. Um, and why isn't America competitive in terms of the infrastructure? Um, and how do we you know, ensure that we have secure and reliable uh, 5G backbone and infrastructure. If the if one of the primary providers of that is a Chinese company, Huawei. Well, there are European uh, companies that ha- that have that capability, and I think part of what we need to do, Rhea, to be um, to think about how we lead in innovation is to think about ourselves operating on a global in a global marketplace in a networked world, and think about competition globally and in a networked way. So that we don't have to be the the ones in every aspect of innovation and and technology. We should find the places in which we think we have competitive advantages. And I think with 5G, it may be applications, right? That we, and we should then partner with trusted allies who may be ahead of us in certain aspects of solar, who may be ahead of us in certain aspects of 5G or or quantum or whatever it might be, uh, materials development, all kinds of places for innovation. And then we ought to figure out where we are well-suited to be leaders in that competition and innovation and invest heavily in those areas. Um, But I think it does need to be a concerted effort with analysis behind it, where the government and the private sector are working together uh, to ensure that we have secure and reliable access to the kinds of technology and materials that we need to continue to innovate and be a leader. Be able to contribute to this. Ellen, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you've supported the State Department's collective approach to foreign policy. How did you see multilateralism at work? And what are the limitations and challenges of this approach? 
you know, so, so I, I, I sort of intimated this with the last, with, with my last answer, um, you know, working foreign policy was, it's, it really was an incredible two years, um, because it was just so different from everything I had done before. Um, I'll say that, it, and, and all the other jobs I had, you know, we have great partnerships around the world with other countries, great intelligence sharing um, partnerships, and in, in many cases where we work with other countries in the production of intelligence. And that, that certainly applied at State Department, where especially amongst our closest allies in Europe, the Five Eyes, Australia, um, um, New Zealand, we have very, very close working relationships. And I'll tell you, it's a big world, um, and cr- lots of challenges, certainly a lot more than when I started during the Cold War, where it's not just, um, you know, it, it's not just regional challenges, but it's functional challenges. Um, Suzanne spoke about cyber and, and, and AI and, and misinformation, um, but there's other things like so support to sanctions. Sanctions is an incredible tool that we use to try and, and, and get our way in foreign policy issues. And we can't do it all alone, even with this intelligence community we've got. And, and, and again, as Suzanne indicated, with all the data that's out there, all the, the insights that are needed, it really requires close intelligence partnerships um, to, to be able to work some of those problems. But as, as it relates to multilateralism, I'll tell you that I think uh, a lot of the work that I did at INR was to set up this current administration that's coming in. You know, President Biden has actually um, put out an interim um, uh, national security strategy where he highlights the importance of diplomacy, but also highlights the importance of our partnerships, of our alliances, that, you know, that really is the thing that keeps us as a, sets us apart from some of the other competitors we have right now, China and Russia um, in particular. You know, we, we have always been a nation that has had great friends and has worked closely with our friends to seek the objectives that we've laid out in our national security strategy and just us as people. And so I'll tell you that I, I very much spent my two years making sure that INR was set in a place was it was in a place that we could continue to support um, um, the, both this inc- this administration and the last administration and, and, and continuing to work with and develop close relationships. I mean that is who we are. Uh, I'll tell you that I'm I'm very excited that this is a part of our national security strategy. And I'm very I, you know I, there's a part of me that's a little sad that I'm not there right now to to work the intelligence piece. Um, um, that's going to be very, very much focused on strengthening, strengthening our alliances. Um, and intelligence sharing is a great way to do it. Yeah, Abby, I was going to add uh, to reinforce uh, Alan's point that I think multilateralism and alliances are vital, especially as we look at uh, maintaining uh, really effective insights from an intelligence perspective, and that we really do need to be invested uh, in these relationships. It is a strength for us and how we share, um, what we share with our allies and what we can derive from them uh, is really important, I think, in our understanding of, uh, of the competition uh, and how we will ultimately help uh, uh, maintain our competitive edge, help us to ultimately prevail if there is conflict. I think a lot of that will be derived from how we work with others. And uh, particularly when we all are, I think, resource challenged Uh, I I think it's really important that we have those partnerships. And then to Suzanne's point, I also think we have, you know, a whole globe of really smart, innovative people. And we're really good in our own country at harnessing that. But there's even more power, you know, the more uh, we can share with others uh, in their perspective and how they help us uh, get after hard problems, I think is vital. Thank you both for your answer. It's really exciting to see what direction we might be going with multilateralism as it relates to intelligence and very personally excited to see where we head up.
with that. Admiral Ashback, many of my internships have focused on analyzing publicly available data because there's such a dramatic amount of information available. Technology has had a huge effect on the way we consume information, and I'm curious why we need intelligence with information proliferation. What value can the intelligence community add in our information environment today? Uh, Well, I think intelligence is even more vital in the information environment we have today uh, because information is just that. It's information. Intelligence uh, actually uses a tradecraft, provides an assessment, uh, is backed by a body of analysis uh, that is underpinned by an assessment on credibility, which I think is incredibly important right now when you look at information available uh, and is also about being uh, objective. Uh, and providing, you know, a non, a not politically uh, charged uh, insight on what is situ- what's happening in a situation, so that uh, decision makers, policymakers, can make the best uh, decision on what to do. And so, I, I think it's even more vital. I think we're going to be looked to increasingly, especially in the open source space, uh, to help filter what what is truth. You know, what's actually fact? Uh, is it credible? Uh, does it add to our narrative? And how does it integrate with the other sources that we may have that are classified that allow us to provide perhaps a deeper picture of uh, truth in terms of what's actually happening? And, and, and so I think it's, uh, it's going to be critical for us that we continue to tra- train folks on uh, what we bring, uh, how we offer that advice and insight. And, uh, and yeah, it, it's true that a lot of people can get information, but I can tell you working in environments where Frankly, my boss, you know, can read the same things I'm reading. Uh, One, he doesn't necessarily have as much time as I do to read it when I was more junior and I was advising. And uh, and two, he's looking for kind of the bottom line, the assessment. What does it all mean? And that's where I think we we bring value to information in advising that you really do need to pay attention to this information because this is the implications of what's being reported here Uh, And this is credible and this poses a threat or, you know, whatever the context is. So I think uh, I I think there's no doubt in my mind that if you all want to work in intelligence, there will continue to be great demand uh, for what we do uh, going forward. Thank you for your response, Admiral Ashback. It's very reassuring to hear that intelligence is still necessary and extremely important today. So one of the main reasons why I fell in love with cybersecurity was because it not only provided an outlook on the future, but it also illuminated our nation's history with the developments in technology. So Suzanne, what has your career taught you about our American history and what is on the horizon as you look to the future? Yeah, it's really an intriguing uh, insight, Rhea. And uh, I I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts, Uh, turn the tables on you a little bit uh, about how your exploration of cybersecurity has informed your thinking about history and, 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 and the future. But, um, but as I you know, think about your question, I, I guess one of the, particularly in the context of cybersecurity, something that you and I share, um, clearly a sense of how far-reaching decisions that we make today, uh, you know, the far-reaching implications that we may not even imagine uh, for the future. So we think about the development of the internet, right? And we talk all the time about, you know, how the Internet was developed without security in mind. And in fact, if you read Walter Isaacson's book, you know, he would he would say it was not only that they weren't thinking about it, it was that they actively, you know, rejected the idea uh, of, 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 of building in security into this ARPANET. 
um, and, and think about the implications of that for today. I, having worked at the CIA, I worked, as I said, in the general counsel's office for a number of years. Uh, you know, the, the, we, we are still um, dealing with the consequences of some of the decisions uh, by policymakers for the ways in which they used CIA early in its, in its early days, right, in terms of foreign, you know, involvement in other countries and uh, involvement in overthrowing regimes, et cetera, and, and the implications for our uh, credibility and trust and just, you know, what's happening in the world um, today. So decisions that we, that, you know, so, so having, looking back at history, I think, and realizing uh, just uh, seeing very real tangible consequences of those decisions the other thing that I think I have uh, uh, developed an appreciation for, uh, as I look back at various points in, the, in, in my career, is the number of times in which we fail to sense the ground shifting beneath our feet. Just so many times when you're sort of proceeding along with a set of assumptions and doing things in a certain way and reacting to things based on, you know, and, and, and suddenly you realize that the dynamic has shifted and you can't continue to think about it that way. And you've got to reorient your thinking because the ground has shifted beneath our feet. And so again, a sense of sort of, you know, we, we need to learn that from history and try to get better at sensing when the ground is sort of shifting uh, beneath our feet. But I'd love to hear Rhea, uh, you know, your thoughts on this. Sure. So I think what, sparked the connection between history and cybersecurity um, was just last month, or sorry, now two months ago, losing track of time here, but two months ago, I organized a mini hackathon slash learnathon for elementary school students in my area. And one of the workshops that I taught there was a basics of cryptography workshop. And I had um, like a hundred attendees and all these little kids were so excited to learn about basic cybersecurity skills. And the one thing that really stuck with me was at the beginning, I was explaining the basics of cryptography and what cryptography was. And I gave an example of the Zimmerman telegram and everybody there was very intrigued that this secret code and the secret telecommunication thing was something that genuinely impacted World War I. And I think that's when I made the connection between history and cybersecurity. And if I'm being honest, I never had an appreciation for history until I found a way to connect it to things that I was actually interested in. I was never a history buff. It almost didn't make sense to me. But when I look at how we've developed our technology since then, I think it's, it's amazing to think about how we have progressed as a nation and how that has helped us in our national security. Rhea, I think that's so cool that you have made that connection and it's so important. One of the things that I'm spending a lot of time on these days is pushing for reinvigoration of civics education in our uh, country. I think we've really let our, uh, a civic literacy fall by the wayside and that includes a sense of history, right? The history of our country and why things are the way they are, uh, and what is what are our shared fundamental values and a sense of civic responsibility. 
And I think part of why it has fallen by the wayside is that 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 we've made a trade-off, which we didn't necessarily have to make between STEM and civics and history. Uh, and we've got to recognize that civics and history are as important to our national security as STEM is. And having that sense of history and that sense of civic responsibility. We talk about cybersecurity as a shared responsibility. But if you don't have a sense of civic responsibility, I'm not sure you get that, right? So it's important for cybersecurity and so many things. So I love that you've made that connection, Ria. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Ria, I wanted to add that uh, in terms of history, I also think it's really exciting uh, how many women played vital roles in developing some of the capabilities that contribute to our history, particularly from an intelligence uh, and uh, cyber perspective. And that uh, a lot of that uh, is really getting uh, more attention in the last few years. And there's just so many great books you can read now um, about women and their contribution. And I, and I think it reinforces a lot of the principles and, and things we've been talking about in this session today. I'm, I'm actually reading the, a game of uh, uh, wolf, wolves and birds, which is about the women who helped with the Battle of the Atlantic, uh, which is a great, uh, great story. I'm not done with it yet, so don't spoil it for me if you've actually uh, actually already finished it. But, uh, um, but I just say that if you're if you're new to paying attention to history, uh, yeah, I just think it's exciting that there are um, a lot of uh, role models uh, that uh, you can read about and really remarkable women who. As we talked earlier in the in the uh, in the session about imposter syndrome, et cetera, that these women who just are incredibly remarkable in what they accomplished in much more difficult time, I think, uh, for women, you know, coming up through uh, through the profession. Of course, I think it's really great that we acknowledge the women contribution to the field, and um, I think it really changes our perspective when we look back on history if we look at it from a what did women contribute kind of perspective. So that's really great. So thank you for that. So before we wrap up this amazing conversation, I was wondering if I could have the Shiro's um, give our mentees um, some career advice. So Ellen, let's go with you first. First of all, thank you. I think, you know, I always get more out of these than I ever think I, I, I contribute. This has just been so inspiring. Um, you know, so my best career advice to you is, is to enjoy the ride. Don't worry so much about the destination. Um, I've thought about this a lot over the last um, few months. I think in, especially for those who are going to um, consider a career in a large bureaucracy like the intelligence community, you get very caught up in the jobs you think you need to do to progress. And from somebody who's now more towards the end of her career than the beginning, um, I, I think it's about enjoying those incredible experiences you're going to have. Um, you're a leader no matter where you are. It's, it's, it's being an undersecretary or an assistant secretary, an admiral is all fine and good. But I suspect my colleagues here would say that it was also really great being that GS9 or that, or that lieutenant um, in the Navy. In fact, it probably was a lot more fun. And so I wouldn't be so worried about where you're going as opposed to really just enjoying where you are. And if you're not enjoying where you are, then that should be a sign to you that it's time to make a change. But the ride, the ride is a lot of fun. Enjoy it. I would totally uh, echo Ellen's advice. And always when I'm, you know, asked that question by young people uh, interested in careers in national security or anything else, I repeat the advice that I got from my mentor, Elizabeth Rinspel Parker, who I've mentioned uh, previously. She said to me when I was at CIA one, one day, she said, Suzanne, don't over intellectualize your career path. 
Uh, you know, don't plan too much. Ellen's point is exactly right. People will tell you, well, tell me where you want to be in 10 years. And these are then these are the jobs you have to, you know, get to in order to get from here to there. Here's the pathway. And, uh, you know, I, I when you hear that a little red flag should go should go up. And and I think Ellen said earlier uh, in the program um, you know, she she chose the jobs where she thought she'd have the most fun. And that's exactly what I tell young people. I say, when you're choosing between two opportunities, think less about which one should I do and think more about which one do I think I will, will give me energy? Which one am I going to, do I think I could get out of bed every day and be excited about doing? Which one do I think would be more stimulating to me, more fun? Um, and even if it isn't quite on the path, serendipity plays a much bigger role in all of our career paths, I'm sure, than anybody would, uh, you know, would, would assume. Um, so, so become an expert in the things you enjoy by doing jobs that you enjoy. Yeah, I would echo Suzanne's point uh, that uh, you, know, you don't always... Um you do want to choose jobs that will challenge you and that you'll have fun at, but sometimes you don't land where you expect you, you get assigned to do something. And so I always tell people grow where you're planted, um, make the most of wherever you're initially assigned, figure out how you have an impact there and opportunity will find you. Challenges will find you. People will notice you. Uh, you will uh, likely turn a job that people maybe thought wasn't an important job or position into something pretty remarkable uh, and then you'll have a line of people trying to figure out how you got your position uh, and wanting to do um, what you do. And so, so that leads to my next point is be replaceable. Uh, and in that, I mean, you guys are already doing this fantastic job of mentoring up to women like us. Uh, you want to make sure that you train those around you and that you're a really good teammate. And so if you're not available um, or you leave to take another position, um, the best, I think the best compliment of whether you really accomplished what you meant to at an organization is that nobody notices when you left, which seems kind of counterintuitive because clearly I think we all would like to be recognized for how valuable we are. But if you're really doing your job right, you're, you're growing all the people around you in a way that if you can't be there, uh, others are going to pick up and not miss a beat um, and, uh, and take care of everything uh, that you would have if, uh, if you were there. And then the last thing I would say goes back to um, some of what I said earlier is embrace what makes you uncomfortable. And part of that is about having fun, but look for the things um, that are unexpected or that you're not good at um, and, uh, and go after them if they interest you uh, and continue to try and uh, broaden yourself. Uh, I think one of the things I've loved about my career uh, in the military, and I, I think it actually extends across the intelligence community is the ability uh, to constantly reinvent yourself and that you get a chance to do a lot of different things over the course of a career, which makes what we do um, really exciting. And, and although I said that was my final point, I will add one more thing that we didn't really spend a lot, we didn't spend any time talking about tonight, but take care of yourself personally though. And, uh, and don't, don't miss opportunities that if it's the right time personally, uh, don't over intellectualize that to steal Suzanne's words that, Things will happen to you personally that are meant to happen, and you'll figure it out. If you have a good partner, you have a good village of people, uh, you'll figure out how to chart a course. That may be a different course than what you expected, um, but don't, um, don't put things off or put people off um, because of your profession. 
And so figuring out that balance and seeking advice from others on how they've done it is really important because in the end, all those people are the ones that are hopefully going to be with you when you come out the other end of your career. Um, and you'll look back on awesome career memories, but, uh, but it's, you know, your career will change over time. Hopefully your family and your friends will be there with you forever. So. Wow. There's a reason why you are all sheroes. That was excellent advice um, for our mentees. So as you all know, um, we end each episode with the same question. Uh, and we often hear this is the most difficult question that we ask. And we'll be asking all of you, including our mentees, the same question. So in keeping with the name of this podcast, The Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? And let's start with Suzanne. So this was such a fun question, and I chose Hoopo, H-O-O-P-O-E. And if you don't know what it is, I want you all to Google it. You can Google it right now. Um, and tell me if you don't think that is one of the coolest looking birds in the whole world. Uh, and I have seen that really cool looking bird in some of the neatest places around the world, in India, in Ethiopia, in Jordan, in Israel, in Sicily. Uh, and I just think it's a really cool bird. And I, I would choose that as my code name. <laughs> I love that. Thanks for sharing. And I did Google it and it is a cool bird. So I hope our audience uh, Googles it as well. Uh, Admiral Ashbeck, let's go with you next. Well, I, I promised that uh, Suzanne and I didn't coordinate it all, but uh, I happen to have picked a bird as well. Uh, mine is a uh, blue heron. And I picked Blue Heron. Uh, I actually had uh, a woman that I worked with uh, in my last uh, assignment, my command master chief, Laura Nunley, uh, painted a Blue Heron for me. And she knows me well that uh, I'm not a patient person. And if you know the Blue Heron, the Blue Heron is incredibly majestic, incredibly patient. And so I think it would be a good code name for me because it is about a, it's not descriptive of me at all. Um, but I, I, I think the birds are amazing. And I find looking at the picture she painted for me um, very soothing and a really good reminder of how important patience is uh, in everything that you do. So, uh, so Blue Heron is, is what I pick. Oh, that's great. And a great reason and a great story. Thanks for that. Ellen, you're next. Well, I've already got a code name because this is my second iron. And you can't change it like the Navy can't change the name of ships. You can't no, I'm glad you there. didn't change it. I was yes. hoping you were going to keep um, it. No, I have kept it. Um, but mine is, mine is Big Mac. And the reason is my dad, um, Jim McCarthy, ran a company. They all called him Big Mac. I worked for him. I was Little Mac. I didn't like that so much. But he was just so inspiring to me um, as a person. Abby, I loved the story with your dad. You know, my dad challenged me the way your dad did, too. I didn't always like to hear some of the things he had to say. But I'd like to think that um, I, I carried... You know, I, 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 he, he, he could, he, it sounds like our dads may be very similar, but the reality is, is that I think I am who I am because of him and he's not with me anymore. And I miss him dearly, but I think he's probably looking down on me right now and saying, yeah, you, you you're now Big Mac. So awesome. Thank you, Ellen. Abby, let's go with you. My code name would be Jericho. Um, I am a huge history buff. And so I think that that's kind of the perfect blend of a little bit of chip on your shoulder if you're familiar with how many times Jericho has gotten its butt whooped throughout history uh so it keeps you humble but also like manages to rebuild every single time um and also just sounds cool like code name Jericho like cool okay so yeah Abby, I, I think 
I might just note that uh, Jim Woolsey, when he was the DCI, used to tell the story that uh, that Jericho, There's a, if you go back and read this story of Jericho, there's a woman who is a spy that helps in one of those, right? And he says that she was one of the very first spies in history. Thanks, Abby. That's great. Uh, Emma, let's go with you next. Sure. Um, so I think my code name would be Water Dragon. Um, the water, because water as an element is very powerful and nourishing, as well as very adaptable. And the dragon is kind of in reference to my background in studying Chinese language and culture, where the dragon's a symbol of strength, but only to those who earn it. And I believe in hard work and earning what comes to me. And that's sort of what attracted me to it. Uh, Not to mention, it's also my Chinese zodiac animal. That's awesome, Emma. Thank you. And Rhea, let's round out the group with you. I think my codename would be Silver Cloud. And basically because I think the recent innovations in cloud computing technology is revolutionizing the cybersecurity field and especially in a COVID-19 world with everything on demand where anyone can work on anything from anywhere. I really think cloud technology has come to the forefront of our lives and become one of a strong, one of my strong interests. And then silver, because I'd like to think that I'm an optimistic and positive person. So I'm always looking for that silver lining. And I think this mindset has really helped me in my cybersecurity adventures so far, because obviously you don't want to get hacked. You don't want to have a data breach, but I think cyber attacks, even if they're just pen testing, can really illuminate vulnerabilities in your system and help you further safeguard your network. So I think Silver Cloud would be a very fitting code name for my interest and my mindset for the future. Wow. I cannot tell you what a great episode this is, and I cannot wait for everyone to listen. Thank you all from... AWIC from NSI and Girl Security for sharing your time with us. Uh, Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for sharing your careers with us. We are so grateful to have you all spend time with us on Iron Butterfly. I hope you all had a little bit of fun. And um, I think the audience is just going to love this episode. This has been a special episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. To learn more about girl security and how you can become a mentee or a mentor, please visit girlsecurity.org. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.